Hey, it's Seth Godin. In the summer of 2012, I had an amazing opportunity to spend three days with a group of extremely motivated entrepreneurs, people right at the beginning of building their project, launching their organization. During those three days, I took them on a guided tour of some of the questions they were going to have to wrestle with, some of the difficult places they were going to just stand up and say, this is me, this is what I'm making. I'm sorry you couldn't be there, but I hope this is the next best thing. Excerpts from the live event, unrehearsed, no slides. Here it is. Enjoy it. But even more important, I hope you do something with it. Thanks for listening. So if we think about the worldview of the person who buys a TV ad, are they an innovator? Are they an early adopter about the format of TV advertising? Hmm? They're laggards. They're the least innovative people in the world. They buy 30-second slots. It's not their job to invent a new kind of TV commercial. They're not, the person who invents a new kind of TV commercial isn't in the room, and you don't get to call on that person. If you want to go talk to the person who is in charge of buying new TV commercials, there's like one person at Zenith who does this and one person at DTP, etc., who does it, that person will buy $100,000 worth as a test and they will never buy from you again because their job is to buy the new thing. Can't build a business on that. So you, what you've done is you've looked at this industry you're in and that you really like. You've made a list of everything that's broken about it. And you're saying, I want to fix the whole thing. This is how it should be. But if you don't have $100 million, you can't get from here to there in a straight line. So instead, what you have to do is say, what one asset can I build? Can I afford to build? And once I build that asset, how can I take that to teach TV a lesson? So remember when um, Kevin Rose from Dig started that little TV show he had? Um, Dig was that online service like Reddit. Kevin is not really a businessman, but he loves inventing new stuff. Because Dig was really popular, he started a TV show. It was an hour a week of him and his friend drinking beers and talking about the internet. And it had over 100,000 viewers every week, which, as you know from ratings, would have put it not at the top, but not getting canceled off the cable network either. And he was in charge of the whole thing. Now, if he had stuck with it, he could have gotten to half a million viewers. For a TV show he made for free, where he was 100% in charge, and where every week he knew he could go straight to everybody. If you had half a million viewers, you could start changing rules. Because when the phone rang and someone said, I want to sponsor your show, Luke, you could say, great, but the ads are only four seconds long. Because you have something, a monopoly, on the attention of these 500,000 people. See what I'm getting at? So the asset that underlies television has changed. It used to be the FCC gave you a channel. If you had a channel, 247 and 29, when I was growing up in Buffalo, that's it. If you had the channel, you made money. If you didn't have the channel, you didn't have a channel. Then cable came along and said, well, there are three channels in a, in a community. There's 175. Some people like Ted Turner totally understood this. So Ted is a billionaire for one reason. He said, I'll take as many channels as I can get. That's it. Whereas ABC and CBS said, we don't understand cable, we're threatened by it, we'll do very much at all. Other than ESPN and one or two others, that's why they didn't grab channels. Ted saw an asset up for grabs, just like I was talking with you, that there's an asset up for grabs, and he grabbed it. So now cable's going away. 
So now there aren't 150 channels, there's 150 million channels. The long tail. Does everyone know about the long tail? Can I do my long tail lecture? Who doesn't know about the long tail? Fine. It only takes a minute. So what we know is that there are hits. That if I look at book sales, TV shows, video rentals, etc., this is top 10, then these are the sales of the next 10, and pretty quickly the sales go to really low numbers for each title. Right? Make sense? Back when there was only 12 radio stations in a town, you only got to listen to this. This didn't exist. Because Jamaican polka music, we're not going to put that on the air. This is called the short head. This is Hitsville, American Top 40, the New York Times bestseller list, the people who are watching the number one shows. Then they invent the internet. And the internet says, we have an unlimited amount of inventory. So, if I look at the sales of Barnes & Noble versus Amazon, what I see is that Amazon gets half their sales in dollars from books that Barnes & Noble has never carried. iTunes gets half their revenue from music that has never once been sold in a store. Blockbuster, I mean Netflix, Netflix gets half their viewers for, for stuff that has never been in a Blockbuster. Half. That this whole section here, the long tail, is half. So now what we're seeing with TV is they just opened up via YouTube and Netflix and other things and iTunes this real estate. It's for sale. Who wants it? Some people, like Netflix, say, I do, and they take all of it. That's how you make money on the long tail. Amazon says, I will sell every book. And that's not enough. Anyone who wants to print on the Kindle, fine. So now the tail goes out there. Most Kindle titles have sold one copy. Because you can make a Kindle title for free, you read it, no one else ever will. Because it's way out here on the long tail. Amazon doesn't care because they own all of it. You with me? YouTube owns all of it. So when you say you want to make a TV channel, I worry, because I say, well, is Luke trying to go up against people who are desperate to maintain their spot on the short head? Or is he talking about owning a tiny slice of the long tail? Now, you can make money owning a tiny slice of the long tail if that slice is the annals of the Biomedical Neurosurgeon Association. 100 people watching your video, but the pharmaceutical company will pay you a million dollars a month to sponsor you. That's very different than Garden Tractor Monthly, which is a video that gets seen by 10 farmers, and you're never going to make a penny. Right? So the scarce thing is attention and trust. So if you built a channel that had attention and trust, everything else will take care of itself. Now, you have to decide what's the best way to go from here, nothing, to attention and trust. The easiest way to do it is to understand that the long tail does not reward mass culture. It rewards indispensable microculture. That if you made a channel about tattoos, people who are into tattoos could not live without you. But if you make a channel that's a sort of a variation of the Jersey Shore, we got lots of alternatives. You can't possibly crowd our attention and grab it. So the secret is, how do I figure out how to get to a micro group that is eager to hear from me and will either pay me with attention or pay me with money and do it in a way that keeps me afloat enough that I can do it again and do it again 
and do it again. Because once you have a thousand channels, each of which is watched regularly by a hundred thousand people, now you have a hundred million with duplication viewership. Now suddenly you've done something really interesting. Now you can dictate to producers what kind of shows you want, and you can dictate to advertisers what kind of ads you're going to run because you did the hard part, which is you found viewers. What you want to do when you're asking someone for actual advice as opposed to just approval is you want to expose the weakest parts of what you're doing and say it as clearly as you can. So when I think about, you know, back to the architect in the building, if you're going to bring in a structural engineer and say, is this building going to withstand an earthquake? You want to do it before you put up all the bricks and before you paint the drywall. Because the structural engineer doesn't care about how fancy you painted the drywall. They don't care about your excuses as to why you're using this kind of timber instead of that kind of timber. You need to say, that joint over there, I'm really worried about this. Can that joint be better? And it's only in the early stages of architecting your business that you get to have these conversations because otherwise you've invested too much and you're going to start protecting and say, oh, don't look at that. That'll be fine. And so what you need to do, again, is be as clear as you can when you're talking to us and say, this is my business, this is my goal, this is my timeline, this is the money I have, and this is why it's going to work. And lay out the foundational structure of it, not why you're doing it. I don't care why you're doing it. I care why I want to buy it. I care why I want to be part of it, because everyone is selfish. Even the people who like you are selfish because they like liking you. That's why they're rooting for you. Not because they're actually rooting for you, but because rooting for you makes them feel good. Okay, and we just have to keep coming back to that. All right. The other thing that I need to talk about is raising money. How many of you have on the agenda to raise money for what you want to do? Okay, so not that many, but I need to talk about it anyway. Anyone who's going to invest in you would like the money back. So the question is, how are you going to give them the money back? And there are only a few choices. The most popular choice is you give that person stock in your company. And we can go into great detail on this later if you want to. But generally it means they own part of your company. Well, if they own part of your company, how are they going to get the money back? The only way is for you to sell it. So a traditional investment deal, the Silicon Valley kind of thing, means you have already promised you're going to sell your company as fast as you can. And if that's not your goal, don't raise money that way. Because if you do, there's going to be this friction, and it's going to start really soon, which is the investor is getting graded on how soon did she bring money back, and you are saying, I want to do this for the rest of my life. I'm never selling this company. Well, someone's going to end up unhappy. The other way to pay people back, particularly if you're not some fancy Silicon Valley company, is you go to the investor and say, look, I'm putting on a show. The show can be whatever. It can be a traditional kind of show, or it could be a coffee shop. And for the first six months, all the profits are yours. And then after that, the amount of profits I give you go down until I've paid back all your money plus this much. So you own a piece of it, but then over time, the piece gets lower and lower because I'm paying you back via the proceeds. So let's say before Kickstarter, you wanted to rent the Tarrytown Music Hall and put on a ballet performance. Well, the theater costs $6,000 to rent. The ballerinas get paid $3,000, so you need $9,000. You go to the investor and say, 
Give me $9,000 to put on the show and the first 18000 in the door is yours. And then we're even. So if you end up making $50,000, you get to keep the rest. And if you make 16000 he gets back his sixteen. He didn't get the full eighteen. You get zero, but it didn't cost you anything either. So you're selling future cash flow from this thing that you were building. Now a bank is never going to do that deal, but your mother-in-law might, and it completely eliminates all that weird family friction of well, they're still my partner, and I'm never going to be able to get rid of them. Right? One of the goals when you're raising money, hate to say it, is to get rid of the person who gave you the money, because if they if you want a partner, get a partner. But if you want an investor, part of the goal is to not have the investor anymore, so you get to decide where you're going. In business-to-business selling, the tribe is rarely about the corporation, and it's about uh, the person in that slot. So chief financial officers are often part of a tribe in that they read the gap standards, they want to argue about Sarbanes-Oxley, they wear the same kind of clothes, they go to similar uh, trade shows, and they recognize each other. They have stuff in common that resonates with them. They're not as integrated as the Grateful Dead tribe, right? They're not as easy to guess what they're going to be like, but they're really close. The kind of person you were telling me about, though, is the early adopter CMO. That person really is part of a tribe. They're reading Adweek together, they're reading my blog, they're doing stuff that you can see that they're in sync. And you can say, if someone's not in the tribe but still has that job, I'm not going to make the sale to them. That's the key part, is figuring out what anchors you say out loud at the beginning to make sure the two of you are on the same team. That when, you know, you go, I used to go on sales calls back in the, the early internet days, you dressed a certain way, you mentioned a certain kind of person, you talked about something in the first five minutes, and it quickly became clear either that person knew who John Battelle was or they didn't, right? And that sync is critical because then you can say, in your case studies, when this person did it, they got this. And when this person did it, they got this. And they either know those people or they know of those people and they respect their work. So when Warren Buffett goes to China, he's a rock star. He's bigger than Mick Jagger. Because among a certain kind of entrepreneur slash capitalist in China, Warren Buffett is the king. Well, that means that if you're trying to make a pitch to one of those people and you can say, and Warren Buffett's one of our investors, you've just eliminated the trust problem. So you've got to figure out, who, how do I do that? How do I create the story so that when I say it, right, there's a, a new product called Lua, L-U-A. And Lua is an iPhone app. And when I tell you what it does, you're going to say, this is the most obvious thing in the world. I can't believe no one ever invented it. It's an iPhone app for... Uh, very expensive live events like movie production and trade shows. And you give every person who's on the team putting the thing on gets it. So if it's a Batman movie, which costs a quarter of a billion dollars to make, everyone on the movie has this app. And with one button, the guy in charge of costuming can press it and alert everyone on the costume team instantaneously of a change. And with one button, the script supervisor can push a new version of the script to everyone who needs to see it. So it completely coordinates all of that. Well, you look at the app, you say, this is sort of cool. And then they say, oh, and by the way, the new uh, Batman movie was made with it, and this movie was made with it, and here's a picture of them making this movie with it, and Strauss Zelnick, who's uh, been in the movie business for 20 years, is on our board. 
suddenly everyone in the tribe says, I'm in. Right? Because you've eliminated all the risk. And if, you got, if they made Batman with it, a movie that costs that much, what's, what are we discussing? Where do I pay? It's $10 a seat? Fine. Well, it costs them a year of their lives to get Batman to take that thing on as their case study. And it's worth more than that. Way worth, worth way more than any other way they could have spent the money to run ads and variety or do whatever. They realized that that was the hard part of this product. Not making the software, because again, it's not that hard. The hard part is, how do I make it so the people I need to sell to instantly trust that we're going to solve their problem? Alright, here's the deal. Um, Woody Allen tells an old, old story in the 60s. He stand on stage and said, my first job was scalping low numbers at the deli. And if you're not from New York, you don't get the joke. But you can grab a number at the deli anytime you want. If you hang around long enough, someone's going to come over and pay you money to jump the line. It doesn't cost anything at all to go into Zabar's and grab a number and hang out for a little while. What I'm trying to drill home, and judging from some of the conversations, it's not getting through yet, so I'm going to try again, is there's all these loan numbers that are available. You don't need to wait for a miracle to happen. You just have to grab a few and present them in the right way. That if you figure out how to run a teen tour in Manhattan for travelers of children of foreign travelers so that you take their teenagers away for three hours and it's good and you advertise it on Craigslist which is free and that the people who come like meeting each other and then these teenagers when they friend each other on Facebook because they had such a great time with you for three hours tell their friends back home and then their friends, and then it's growing and growing and then these teenagers end up build, building this community among themselves because they still connect with that person from Chile and that other person from Japan you just built a cash flow positive business with no investment in a week. And you're only 17 years old. right? That, that's the level of barrier removal that has just happened. And when I started my first business when I was 14 without a, a permission slip from my parents violating who knows how many laws, and then another one when I was seven, it was really hard. It's really hard to persuade a bus company to rent me two buses and then persuade the ski area to let me have a uh, ski club, etc. Now it's not hard, and none of you are 17. So the challenge here is to figure out how you can get past the stuff that's hanging you up, which is the work you've already done, which you need to discard some of it, and the work that you're using to distract yourself instead of the work that's actually difficult. Those are the things that I need to hear from you about. And those are the things that we need to explore because there's no shortage of opportunities in your space. So connect. Start tomorrow. Just connect. All you need is email. The whole world is waiting to connect with you if you choose to say, I'm going to put on this show. So impresarios, what we do is we rent the theater, we get an opera singer, we sell tickets, the show happens. We need you to put on a show. The show doesn't have to be digital. The show could be in person. The show could be that a whole bunch of people every year go and hang out by the river on July 4th and you go buy $300 worth of ice cream sandwiches and sell them for $700. And then you go home. But it's a show. You made something happen that wasn't happening before you got there. It should be a show 
whether you care about the customer and where you care about the work you're going to do because you're going to have to commit to it even when it's not working. And I have a million ideas for you and most of them are bad and I don't know the difference between the good ones and the bad ones, but I know what they have in common and I want to keep putting them in front of you so that you understand that um, there's parts that you ought to focus on that matter. So I don't know if any of you had the chocolate-covered bananas. I shouldn't tell you about them because they're so delicious I won't get any more. You'll steal them. Isn't it delicious? Michelle's eating one right now. So some of you have met Michelle. Michelle runs an extraordinary impresario business on her own. She's certainly not my assistant. She is someone who makes things happen. And I just want to commend her to you if you haven't had any chance to talk to her. But I want to talk about the chocolate bananas she's eating right now. Don, the guy who makes them, I think that's what it says on the box, not this Don, um, spent a lot of time figuring out how to make a vegan, delicious, chocolate-covered frozen banana. And he figured out how to get them to the supermarket without melting. None of which is hard. All of which is doable if you have enough money. Hire a frozen banana expert, hire a transportation expert, problem solved. You know what's hard? Hard is getting incredibly expensive shelf space in the supermarket so that when you want to buy chocolate-covered bananas, you can find them. And hard is getting the people in this room, none of whom have had a chocolate banana before today, to know about chocolate bananas. Those are the only two hard parts. And he has spent all his time figuring out how to make chocolate bananas, which is easy. So we got to figure out how to get you to focus your time on the story and the mechanics. So Christina asked what, if I could slowly explain what you're on the hook for tomorrow. What you're on the hook for is your first attempt to do what I've been doing up here for hours. Tell us a story. Tell us a story that matches our worldview, whether it's our real worldview or the one you want us to imagine we have. Say, pretend you are this. Here is my story. Tell us what it is you're going to build, why it's important, why you're the one to build it, why it's likely to work. Tell us what's scarce, what's hard. Tell us why it's extremely important that this happen and it happened now. If you can't do that, then don't do your project tomorrow. Do a project you make up tonight and it will become your project. But this act of being able to look people in the eye and say, this is what we are going to do, is hard. And you can get better at it. So I have a couple examples with me. There's this magazine I get because it's so amusing and because it's a great example of all of this. Here it is. So this magazine is called The Absolute Sound and it has 100,000 subscribers. They are a tribe. There are only two magazines that go to this tribe and they're by competitors. Each one is always this thick and it's filled with articles and ads. So this is just an ad I opened to at random. This is from Bob Carver. He's famous to the tribe because he invented some very important stereo amplifiers 20 years ago. He retired and then he came back with this. This amplifier costs $8,000 and it's made with tubes that are 40 years old. Okay? Now, very few people on earth want to buy this amplifier. That's fine with him because all of them read this magazine or the other magazine. And this ad costs $3,000. So if he sells one, he comes out ahead. Now, Bob's business is very simple. He says, I'm really smart. I know how to make a better amplifier. 
Yeah, fine. It's true, but it's not important. What's important is Bob Carver has a reputation. Bob Carver has our trust because he's made good stuff in the past. And Bob Carver has a story to tell us. And he tells the story in words and in pictures and his website. It is not for everyone. It is for a few people in the tribe. Now, some of the people in the tribe are actually friends with other people in the tribe. So when they get this, they're early adopters, right? When they get this, they're going to invite all their friends over to listen to it. And they will repeat Bob's story to them the best that they can. So for example, you can remove the tubes and replace them with Chinese tubes or Russian tubes or tubes from Syracuse, New York, and they all sound just a little different. Why is this important? Not because we need our, our Bob Dylan to sound a little different, but because the act of changing the tubes is fun. And the act of talking about it is funner still because it makes us unlonely and gives us a, a chance to connect with people in our tribe. So that's his story, which is totally different than this company's story. This company does $100 million in sales, selling speakers that cost between $20,000 and $100,000 a pair. That's for two, so you have to divide by two. Now, the people who buy these speakers buy them for two reasons. One, they're wicked loud. And two, it's from this company. And this company cannot be criticized because they're the biggest at doing what they do. So if you're insecure and you invite people over and they say, boy, those are butt ugly speakers, the first thing you do is you turn it really loud because they're not stereophiles, they just want to hear it as loud. And then the second thing you do is, and you say, it's from Wilson. As you know, they're the biggest in the industry. I must really know what I'm talking about. Totally different story told to the same tribe. Right? Moving on to a couple other examples. Some of the things that are sold, like this guy right here, he sells these amplifiers. And the reason that people will buy them is because every big city has one or two dealers who have a showroom where you can go and listen to the stuff. And he's in almost all of them. Because he's what he has that's scarce is a relationship with all the dealers. The dealers trust him, he trusts the dealers, he gives them half the money in exchange for being in their listening room. Right? All of which is a way to do that thing that he needs to do to tell a story to a certain part of the tribe, which is, I want to listen to my stuff before I buy it, and I want to buy it from a dealer I trust. Okay? His thing doesn't have to sound as good or as interesting as Bob Carver's. It merely needs to look the right way, be priced the right way, and go through the right channel. He's willing to pay for that privilege. Right? And then the last example I'll give you is toward the back, you'll see ads for stuff where they have spent zero to get dealers. So these guys, it says at the bottom, if you call us, we will come to your house and play you this. This amplifier costs $175,000. Now, instead of giving half the money to the dealer and not selling any, because they really wouldn't, because how many people are going to walk in and want to buy this without being pushed, they're going direct to people and using this vehicle, the magazine, to reach just certain people in the tribe. They're going to fail because if someone's going to tell the story of this to someone else, the only story they're giving you to tell is how expensive it is, which is not necessarily a good way to grow your business. The point is, there's 
10,000 tribes in America like this one. Not to buy products that are this insanely expensive, but that are eager to connect around something. And the person who's making the most on a daily basis is the person who runs the show where you can go in a given city, they run them twice a year, and 10,000 people in the tribe all come. Because they're not making anything except connections. And they're saying, having these 10,000 people come to the Waldorf Astoria, spend two days meeting all the manufacturers, meeting each other, and listening, that's worth 100 bucks. 10,000 times 100, million dollars, right? Do that in three or four cities, that's business. All of which is a way of saying, if you wanted to stand up here and tell the story of one of those businesses the way I did, you could do that. And you could do it without fear of criticism, and you could accurately report, based on what I just told you, what they do. But when it's your project, it's harder. Because you're too close to it, and you don't want it to fail, and you don't want people to tell you that you're a fraud. And so you'll erect all these barriers and softeners between the story we need to hear and the story you're going to tell us. So tomorrow, what I want you to do is tell us the story. You're an actor. You're playing a role. And the role is to persuade us that you're right. Or if you're not right, to give us a chance to explain to you how you could do it better. Thank you for listening to the Startup School with Seth Godin. To learn more about Seth or to subscribe to his daily blog, please visit sethgodin.com. You can also find his books in any bookstore or on amazon.com. This has been an Earwolf Media production. Executive producers Jeff Ulrich and Scott Ackerman. For more information, visit Earwolf.com.